They're also welcome to remain here with you as we turn together to the book of Acts, chapter 25. We are nearing the end of our old friend Acts. Just a few more weeks and we will leave Luke and Acts. Never fear, in months to come, we will rejoin our friend Luke in his gospel. But for now, we have just a few weeks left as we look this week at Paul and his audience with Agrippa. Next week, we'll look at his sea voyage and then Paul at Rome. Our text this morning is a lengthy one. It is one of the challenges of preaching consecutively through books of the Bible. You're faced with a text like this that is many verses, more than 50 verses, but it really is one unit. It is one thought. And in order for us to understand, I think, what the Lord is telling us through this episode, we must look at it all at once. So if you would please give your attention and your patience to the reading of God's holy word, it is indeed a blessing to us. It is inerrant. It is sufficient, and it is authoritative. Acts chapter 25, beginning at verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, 
so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as He was saying these things in His defense, 
Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Thus far the reading of Holy Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask Your blessing upon this Word. We ask that You would use it to draw us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Do you have trouble sharing your faith? Are you afraid of the responses that you might get if you were to tell others what you believe about the Lord Jesus? Perhaps also as you go about your daily life, you find the circumstances in which you would have opportunities to share your faith very intimidating. Perhaps you are around those who have more education than you do. Perhaps you are around those who have more authority over you. Or perhaps even it's something as simple as you are not sure what to say. You think about, I will testify for Jesus. I'll tell others about my faith, but I have to wait until I know more. I have to learn more. I have to take more Sunday school classes. I have to read the Bible more. How could I possibly share my faith unless I've memorized at least half of the book of Romans? I won't know where to turn. I won't know where to go. I'll look foolish. Sharing our faith is one of the most difficult and intimidating things about being a Christian. It's because of the world in which we live, it's because of the fears that we have, and it's because of the way that Satan preys upon us. This story this morning is a testimony by, the, by Paul of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is more than that. It is also a model for us about how to share our faith and even a model for the circumstances in which we often find ourselves. And so this morning, I would like us to look at three aspects of Paul's defense here before Agrippa. First, we will look at the setting. And then we will look at the testimony that Paul gives. And then finally, we will look at the response that is given. And I trust that by hearing God's Word, not just for Agrippa, not just for Festus, not just for those who are with him, but God's Word for us today. We will be blessed 
in the testimony of the gospel. Well, let's look first then at the setting in which Paul finds himself, because Paul's defense does not occur in a vacuum. The setting is really of two sorts. There is power and there is pomp. And in that way, the world in which Paul lived and breathed was very much like our own world. A world that is marked by power and by pomp and circumstances. Let's look first at the power that was before Paul. There are many, many important things arrayed against Paul. Who has the real power here? It's certainly not Paul. He doesn't even have his own freedom or liberty. It's not the Jews because they don't have the ability to even bring him to trial. It's not even the king that we will look at in a moment. The real power here is held by Rome. Rome holds Paul's life in his hands. Rome has all of the power, and Paul's situation is evidence of this. Paul is, in one sense, a pawn of political circumstances. He is a hot potato for Felix and Festus and Nero and others within Rome. This is not that dissimilar to sometimes the way we feel. As laws are passed without our say-so that affect our lives. Perhaps some of you saw the news and were saddened to see that one of the largest states in our union, New York, has now passed a law changing the definition of marriage. And it's not just about that law, though, is it? That law seems to be part of a train, a juggernaut that is coming and rolling down on us and there's nothing that we can do. We know what the Bible says. We know what we should stand for, but we don't have any power. That's a lie that Satan wants you to believe. But as far as the visible, here Rome is the one with the power. And even Festus, the one who is in charge of Paul, is small potatoes in Rome. He's an obscure governor in an obscure province. If you go through the great histories of Rome, you will not see Festus' name. He is not big time in the Roman Empire. Festus has a problem because of this. He needs to send a report. He needs to send Paul with a charge. But he is completely, as he says in his own words, at a loss. He is out of his depth. To Festus and to Rome, the matter of this Jesus, this one who was dead, but Paul somehow says is alive, is a trifling matter to the powers that be. Isn't that often how we see the world react to the gospel? To the claims of who Jesus is? It's an obscure thing that's unimportant, that people blow out of proportion and cause difficulties all the time. This is how the world views Jesus. There's a second man here who has some power. He's a man by the name of Agrippa. He is the last in the line of the Herods. He is Herod Agrippa II. His great-grandfather was the one who butchered all of the children. His grandfather was a murderer. His uncle was a murderer. 
He comes from a long line of murderers, adulterers, and fools. And here now he is the king, as we see over and over again. But he is king over a rump kingdom. He has been given a morsel by Rome because he is loyal. He doesn't rule over all of Judea anymore. He rules over just a very small portion. So again, what seems to be important, what seems to be powerful, O king, is really not. This is the setting of power that Paul is placed in. But there's also a setting of pomp, of pomp and pageantry. pageantry excuse me. Do you notice what happens here? Agrippa and his sister, Bernice, who's also sort of his wife, comes along with him, his constant companion. They go along to go visit Festus, to go greet the new governor. And they come in all of their finery. And so now, when Paul is to be brought before them, you see the great pomp and circumstance. Festus has set up the situation. In verse 23, we see, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Now, I want you to imagine in your mind's eye, Herod in his finest robes, Bernice in her finest gown, I want you to imagine a military escort with gleaming swords, with horses that champ and tread the ground. I want you to imagine trumpets and flags and bright colors. This is certainly something to make a notice, to make an effect. And it's not just the two of them. All of the dignitaries are there with him. All of the military tribunes, all of the prominent men of the city, everyone is all there. And we can just imagine that Festus is showing off as well. Because the Romans loved this. Anyone who has ever seen one of the old epic movies about Rome knows this. You've seen El Cid or uh, any other movie that has involved Ben-Hur you'll notice they have the great amphitheater and they have all of the trumpets and all of the flags and everything. See this in your mind's eye. Everything here is to show you how important Rome and Agrippa are. But Paul and Luke put it into eternal perspective with us. Because you see, the word here for pomp is a very interesting word. It's a Greek word that many of you know. It's the word Fantasia. You recall that? The old Disney cartoon with all of the pictures and the lights and the cartoons. It's not real, is it? It's part fantasy. It's part unreality. That's what this pomp is. Luke is sitting back here and telling us all that you see that you think is substantive, all that you see that you think is arrayed against you, is passing away. It's pomp. It's fantasy. It's circumstance. And imagine now, in the midst of all of this glory comes Paul. By all accounts, Paul is a man about five feet tall. Balding. Hunched over, perhaps. Wearing a two-year-old tunic. And in chains. Imagine in your mind's eye, Paul shuffles into the theater. 
He comes to the middle of the hall. He can't even stand up because he's tired and chained. Imagine all of those looking and saying, is this what the big deal is about? This is what's causing all the trouble? Why are we wasting our time? Have you ever felt like that? People tried to belittle you and what you think, what you believe. Paul comes in. And Paul doesn't need to be here. You need to know this. Paul's already made his defense. This is not a trial. It's not even a formal hearing. Paul is waiting to be sent to Rome. Paul could have said to the jailers, no thank you, I won't put on the dog and pony show for you. It will not be Paul at the improv tonight. And he would have been completely within his Roman rights. So why does Paul come out to be embarrassed, to be mocked, to be laughed at, to be placed in the middle of this pomp, Paul comes out because Paul burns with a desire to tell others about Jesus. He has yet one more opportunity to testify to the gospel of grace that has saved him and changed him. And so he gives this testimony. It is a testimony that you can give. It is a testimony that I can give. It is a testimony of confession. It is a testimony of conversion. And it is a testimony of conformity. First, it is a testimony of confession. Paul comes in and he does something that isn't exactly wise for a prisoner to do. He begins by telling those in authority how miserable a man he used to be. All of the bad things that he did. How he killed people how he pressured and tortured people to blaspheme, how he pursued them even to foreign cities. And Paul says, my life wasn't hidden. According to the strictest party you could possibly imagine, the Pharisees, this is the way that I lived. And he begins to describe all of the things that he held dear that his opponents still hold dear. And so he does something that we need to remember to do as we give our testimony. He begins by finding commonality with them. Do you notice that? Paul says, I believed some of the things that you believe. And he doesn't come to them and say, you are a wicked sinner. You should be good like me. He says, I was a wicked sinner. Jesus saved me. Jesus can save you. You see, he doesn't whitewash his life. I think far too often today we believe that we must be perfect or at least seem to be so in order to get an audience for the gospel. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are messed up people. That we are broken. That we are arrogant. That we are murderers. That we are liars. That we are cheats. The Bible teaches that Jesus redeems murderers and liars and cheats. This is what Paul confesses. He confesses to all of these past sins. Are you ready to confess? 
covenant children here. Those who have grown up in the church. Those who have been from smallest days in the nursery, through VBS, through Sunday school. Are you willing to confess that you too are a sinner? That you too need Jesus? Because you see, growing up in the church is not a solution for sin. Growing up in the church is a great blessing to hear the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And to know the calling of the Savior. But you see, none of us is perfect. Not leaders, not fathers, not mothers. We must confess that we are in need of a Savior. Because once we confess that, then we can truly know the conversion that Paul talks about. Paul goes in for the third time about his story of how he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And we won't look at the details here, but I want you to remember that story. And I want you to ask yourself, what changed Paul? What took him from being an arrogant, proud, angry, wicked man to being a man who was willing to stand in chains and be mocked to speak of Jesus? It wasn't a philosophy. It wasn't a rule. It was Jesus. He met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road. And his change was so dramatic that people wondered if he was the same person. And it's humorous how the world psychoanalyzes Paul. Well, surely Paul must have had an epileptic fit. And that's what caused him to see something that looked like the sun. Oh, you know how hot it is in Damascus that time of year. He probably got heat stroke or sunstroke and was blinded. No, it wasn't epilepsy and it wasn't sunstroke. As the great commentator Ironside says, it was sunstroke. S-O-N. It was a strike from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself that changed Paul forever. I want you to notice here that Paul dwells upon the importance of that experience. We should not be afraid to testify to what the Lord has done in our lives. Do you see what Paul does here? In a sense, it is very unchurchlike. It is very, even in a sense, unreformed. He begins with his experience and then he moves to the Scriptures and says, I only teach what Moses set forth in the Scriptures. We should be ready to testify to others of the way in which Jesus has changed us forever. Do you know that change? If you don't, all that you know of the Bible, all that you know of the hymns is of no importance. All that you know of philosophy, of reading, of science, of knowledge... All of it is nothing unless you know the change that Jesus makes personally in your life. That is what Paul knew. And you see, Paul was driven on because the Lord gathers those who are His. And Jesus makes this famous statement, it is hard to kick against the goads. Now, if you're like me, you perhaps wonder what a goad is. Is it something like a goat, but different? Is it 
A stick? What is it? A goad was a metal plate that was put at the front of an ox cart with spikes going out. And so as the ox cart moved, if the ox stopped and got the idea that it wasn't going to move, the driver would hit the ox with a switch. And the ox, being a bit temperamental, would kick back at the cart and say, Stop that. I don't, I'm not ready to move yet. And when it would do that, it would hit the spike. And then guess what the ox would do? It would go. You see, all of the circumstances of Paul's life, everything that he was, everything that he did, was decreed by God so that he would be ready for the mission that Jesus would give to him. And that is true not just of Paul. That is true of you as well. Every bit of your life has been decreed by God that you might be in His service. This is a conversion that Paul tells of. But Paul ends his story here with a story of conformity. That is, he puts it this way in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. You see, one who is converted by Jesus, one who is changed, one who has that experience is a disciple of Jesus. And disciples obey Jesus. It is not simply with the lips. It is also with our lives. Obedience comes with a cost. The life of a Christian is a transformed life. Is your life transformed? Are you different than before you confessed Jesus? Because Paul certainly was. Paul was transformed and it made a difference in his life and in everything that he did. He began to be obedient to the Lord to the letter. Do you see what he did here in verse 20 of chapter 26? But I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. Does that sound familiar? Put your finger here and turn back to the very beginning of Acts, in which our Lord gives command to His disciples. And in verse 8, He says this, You will be My witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, its surrounding region, and to the ends of earth where the Gentiles live. Paul was not disobedient to the command of our Lord Jesus. He took his testimony out where the Lord had commanded. So what is the response? After all, this is the Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest missionary and evangelist in the history of the world, one of the apostles who knew the Bible better than anyone, who wrote half of our New Testament Bible, If anyone would know the perfect technique for evangelism, it would be Paul, right? We expect round success. How many were converted, Luke? Hundreds? Thousands? What's the response? The first response from Festus is not what we might expect to a giant of the faith like Paul. He says, You... 
are bonkers. The elevator does not go to the top, Paul. You are crazy. And he uses that kind of vernacular. This is not a clinical definition. He says, you are absolutely nuts. Now, why does he say that? He says that because what Paul says is absolutely unbelievable to him. There is no way that what Paul is saying could be true. Festus listens patiently, but do you notice when he interrupts? He interrupts right after Paul speaks of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then he can't take any more. Okay, yeah, so you were out on the Damascus Road. Oh, yeah, okay, so you're a Reformed Pharisee. Okay, yeah, you love people and you give them money. Okay, okay. Wait a minute. Don't be talking to me now about people dying and rising from the dead. That's crazy talk. That never happens. That can't happen. That's what Festus responds with. You see, Festus is okay with resurrection as an idea, as a metaphor, as a concept that would be talked about in Oprah's book club. But when you start talking about it as something that places demands on your life, that there's a reality of a Savior who is risen from the dead and who is Lord and King over all, then Festus wants no part of this. He's done. Because, you see, the reason it's unbelievable to him is it has at its root unbelief in God. Unbelief in the supernatural. Unbelief that such a change that Paul is describing can take place. We might imagine Festus thinking to himself, yeah, yeah, Paul, you talk a good game, but I bet you when nobody's looking, you're back to your old ways. Isn't that how the world sees us most of the time? The church? As people believe in crazy things and do crazy things. This is a response to the gospel. It is absolutely unbelievable. And it's becoming increasingly common in our day and age because it is a result of intellectual pride. That's why Paul says, why should it be so unbelievable to believe in the resurrection from the dead? Well, all the time we see people saying it's unbelievable. Well, perhaps we can say that Festus just wasn't ready. But here we have another man. We have Agrippa. And Agrippa is perhaps the perfect target for evangelism. Agrippa is a Jew. And so he knows about the Old Testament. He knows the prophets. He knows the promises. He knows the rituals. He knows all of the ceremonies. But at the same time, Agrippa is pro-Roman. He's a Roman vassal. He's not for the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He's not for a Jewish revolt. He's very objective in that sense. He doesn't have this great hatred toward Paul. He's the perfect target for evangelism. Surely Paul will succeed here. What's Agrippa's response? He says... After Paul presses the point home, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe them. And Agrippa looks at him and he says, In a short time, would you make me a Christian? Now, I think here sometimes we're at a loss because of older translations. 
Older translations make it sound like Agrippa is just this close to becoming a Christian. He's saying, oh, you almost got me, Paul, but no. But that's not really what Agrippa's saying. He's saying, do you really think, with a 15-minute speech, you are going to get me to say that Jesus rose from the dead and my friend Festus here is going to think I'm a crazy fool like you? Do you really think that? I mean, come on. That's his response. His response is one that this is unthinkable. I have status in society, Paul. I'm not going to give that up. Paul, I have my companion, Bernice, here. I'm not going to give her up. I have my friend Festus here and his respect for me. I'm not going to give that up. What are you thinking? You see, that's the other way in which the world responds to the gospel message. How can you think to convert me so quickly? How can you think that I would change my life just because of some stories that you're telling? And that too has at its root unbelief. Maybe you have experienced either in the telling or in the receiving either of these reactions. Maybe you have been offended by the gospel. Paul's testimony here is clear. Paul's obedience here is clear. The result is left up to the Lord. You, as you go throughout your life, testifying to what Jesus has done to change you, will meet resistance. You will meet people who think you are crazy. You will meet people who think that you just have no common sense at all. You will meet people who will try and intimidate you with power, with pomp and pageantry. But Paul stood tall. Not because of who he was. Not because of what he knew, but because he knew he was in the arms of his Savior. We see that here in Paul's response to them. You see, Paul, we might expect, would be very discouraged. He might say, as we might react, well then, fine, if you don't want to believe, whatever. I don't need you anyway. Plenty of converts out there. Plenty of churches I've planted. But that's not what he says. He says, whether long or short, I would to God that not only you, Agrippa, but everyone who hears me would be changed like me, would be forgiven like me, would be a servant of Jesus like me except for I would pray to the Lord that you wouldn't have these chains. You see, what drives Paul is not a knowledge that he's right. What drives Paul is a love for others and a hope in the Savior that he cannot help but give to others. That is our mission. We are not out to correct the world in its thinking or its behavior. We are out to change the world, to show them hope, to show them love, to show them the Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.